You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Let it snow. White Christmas. Do you hear what I hear? Silver Bells, The Christmas Song, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Holly Jolly Christmas, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, Winter Wonderland. Beyond the obvious answer of being Christmas carols, what do these songs all have in common? What surprising fact ties them all together for our topic today? All of these classic Christmas songs were written by Jews. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the... Must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. A little bit about why this episode exists before we begin. While getting episodes out on time in the last six weeks of the year has been an absolute fool's errand for me while working retail and rideshare, it pleases me to post an episode a day early for the first time ever, two days into Hanukkah and two days before Christmas. Though I was raised Catholic, or as Richard Jenny said, I'm Catholic in the same way that if a cow were born in a tree it would be a bird, in recent years we've discovered that my mother's family converted from Judaism when they moved to the U.S., during a pre-World War II spike in anti-Semitism. The generation that converted kept their former faith and their heritage a secret from their children, though the fundraisers at their local JCC still found them. In the more recent past, at a Hanukkah party at a local tea shop that happened to be going on at the exact same time on the same street as the Krampus Walk that a number of our friends were in, my husband and I met a young rabbi with salt and pepper hair and tattoos up both arms. Since then, we've been attending Sabbath dinner at his apartment and learning about Judaism. Judaism is also what got me into listening to and eventually making podcasts in the first place. The very first podcast I ever listened to was an episode of Unorthodox, discussing whether there's a pejorative connotation to calling someone a Jew rather than a Jewish person. I don't think there is, and if there is, I'm reclaiming it, so let's call a Jew a Jew, shall we, and talk about the Jews who were instrumental, no pun intended, in shaping the way people have experienced Christmas through music for the past 80 years. Jews writing Christmas songs isn't some quaint relic of your grandparents' era. Who remembers the Ethiopian famine relief fundraiser song, Do They Know It's Christmas? Show of hands? Okay, a number of people. This 1984 hit was recorded by the supergroup Band Aid. How super? Well, nobody special, just David Bowie, Duran Duran, Cool and the Gang, Sir Paul McCartney, Phil Collins, Spando Ballet, Sting, U2, and Wham, and that's only about half of the ensemble. The whole thing was the brainchild of singer, songwriter, and activist Paul Geldof. Irish-born Geldof had a Jewish grandfather, so while I wouldn't go as far as to call him a Jewish songwriter, Let's just say he was grandfathered in. 
The song sold over 2 million copies around the globe and raised more than $24 million. Like an action hero returning when he is needed, Do They Know It's Christmas has been re-recorded three times, in 89 and 2004 for famine relief, and in 2014 to raise funds to help combat Ebola. In terms of fundraiser songs, the only thing to top it was Elton John's Candle in the Wind, 1997, to honor the late Princess Diana by raising money for the charities she championed. Oh, and to answer the question, do they know it's Christmas? Ethiopia is over 60% Christian, so I'm going to go out on a limb and say yes. Yes, they do. The composers we're talking about today have names that are less familiar than they were two generations ago, though a few, like Mel Torme and Irving Berlin, still have some cachet. Many of these nearly forgotten names were also pen names, owing to the age-old habit of changing your name to sound more American and less ethnic. It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year was written by George Weil, born Bernard Weissman, and Eddie Pola was originally Sidney Polacek. Weil got his start playing piano in the Catskills before moving to L.A. to write and conduct music for the Alan Young radio show. His other great claim to fame is writing the music to the theme song for the TV show Gilligan's Island. Musical talent must run in their family. Weil's grandson is Adam Levy, who plays guitar in Nora Jones' band and is also a composer. Jay Livingston, who co-wrote Silver Bells, was born as the thoroughly Jewish-sounding Jacob Levinson. The song was written for the 1951 Bob Hope movie, The Lemon Drop Kid. The song was originally Tinkle Bells, which is a legitimate choice of words to describe bells ringing. And then his wife informed him of what the word tinkle means to little children and people who can only use childish euphemisms to describe natural bodily functions. So he changed it. The song's lyricist, Ray Evans, was also Jewish. The two formed a songwriting partnership in 1937 that endured until Livingston's death in 2001. Bonus fact, according to the American Society for Composers, Authors, and Publishers, the most popular version of Jingle Bells is the one by saxophonist Kenny G, also a Jew. This episode's going to turn out like a long-form version of Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song, and I only wish I'd thought of it early enough to set it to music. The best-selling single of all time is also a Christmas carol written by a Jew. The Bing Crosby recording of White Christmas by Irving Berlin. Born Israel Berlin in a village in Russia, he grew up in the tenements of New York, where even the children had to work so the family could scrape by after their father died. Berlin left home and sang on the streets, eventually landing a gig as a singing waiter in a Chinatown restaurant, where he gained notoriety for making up dirty lyrics to popular songs. That was where he got his first crack at songwriting, which charted the course for the rest of his life. The sheet music for that song, Marie from Sunny Italy, incorrectly listed the lyricists as I Berlin. Berlin went with it and changed his first name to Irving as well. Though he never learned to read or write music and could only play the piano in one key, Berlin was soon selling an average of a song a week. He wisely kept the rights to his songs, but lived modestly considering his success, and still went to his mother's apartment, the nice new one he got for her, for Sabbath dinner every Friday. 
By the end of the 1930s, Berlin had successful Broadway shows in New York and musical movies to write in California, and he and his family, a wife and four daughters, split their time between the coasts. One December, the girls were back east, but he had to stay in Hollywood. Missing his family, Berlin tapped into those feelings of homesickness and loneliness to write a song that would be included in the film Holiday Inn and become one of the biggest hits in a career well familiar with big hits. Crosby, who couldn't have foreseen that this song would soon define him, gave it a tepid approval when he first read it. I don't think we have any problems with this one, Irving. White Christmas was written in 1942, when many young men were far from home fighting in World War II. For the men in the sweltering and alien Pacific theater, the nostalgia of a snow-covered holiday struck a nerve. White Christmas has sold in excess of 50 million copies since then. It won Berlin an Oscar, though he was nominated six other times. Irving Berlin is actually the only Oscar presenter to ever read his own name out as the winner. Berlin also gave us God Bless America, Putin on the Ritz, Easter Parade, and musicals like Annie Get Your Gun. Two heads must be better than one because another Jewish songwriting duo, Richard Smith and Felix Bernard, wrote Winter Wonderland, and Messrs. Sammy Kahn and Jewel Stein gave us Let It Snow. Stein's family were immigrants from Ukraine, and Kahn was born Cohen on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. It's the circumstances of the song's birth, however, that provide another thread that tie these songs together. Let It Snow was written in 1943, not in snowy New England, but in Hollywood, California, during a heat wave. Kahn and Stein were thinking of cold weather imagery to try to mentally deal with the heat. You might notice it's not actually a holiday song, but since it's about winter, and Christmas happens during the winter, a Christmas song it became. The same happened to Jingle Bells, which was written about traveling to see family for Thanksgiving. Though Jingle Bells doesn't have a Jewish author, it does have the honor of being not only the first Christmas song, but the first song ever broadcast from space in 1965. In a Christmas-themed prank by Gemini 6 astronauts Tom Stafford and Wally Shura, they told Mission Control, We have an object. Looks like a satellite going from north to south up in a polar orbit. Looks like it might be very low. Looks like he's going to re-enter soon. Stand by. Let me just try to pick up that thing. The astronauts then produced a tiny harmonica and some sleigh bells they had smuggled aboard and played their rendition of Jingle Bells. The 1943 heat wave, which still holds third place or better in the records for hottest days and remains the sixth hottest year overall for which we have records, was a blessing in disguise for crooners of carols. Composers Bob Wells and writer-singer Mel Torme were also suffering in SoCal when they evoked cold-weather imagery, just as Kahn and Stein had. Theirs was a temporary relief, though. The song came together so quickly, it was done in about 45 minutes. The most famous version was the first one recorded, the version by Nat King Cole. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose 
Cole did four different recordings over the subsequent five years, sometimes with his trio, sometimes solo, which is likely to be the one you're familiar with. Mel Torme, the Velvet Fog, whose singing talents were a recurring reference on the show Night Court, and who saw a return to popularity when people rediscovered performers like Torme and Tony Bennett about a decade ago, also recorded the song, but his version didn't sell very well. Luckily for him, he owned the publishing rights to the song, meaning it continued to bring him royalties for the rest of his life as people kept recording covers. An underappreciated song, at least in this reporter's opinion, takes on a greater depth of meaning when you learn about its original context. Do You Hear What I Hear was written by a married duo with terrifically Christmassy names, Noel Regney and Gloria Shane. Noel, which, you know, is written like Noel, was a Catholic hailing from Alsace, France, but Gloria was a Jewess from Brookline, Massachusetts. Her family lived next door to Joseph and Rose Kennedy, parents of future President John Kennedy. In October 1962, at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, when nuclear war with Russia seemed imminent, Shane and Regney wrote, Do You Hear What I Hear? as a plea for peace. It's a protest song, sort of at the opposite end of the spectrum from Rage Against the Machine. Shane and Regney merged the secular and the sacred by retelling the nativity story in modern language, set to a classic-sounding modal harmony. The climax of the song speaks directly and fervently to Shane's childhood neighbor, President Kennedy. The song's plea for peace and goodness and light struck a chord with an anxious public and soon became part of the modern holiday canon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Outside of Santa Claus himself, no Christmas-time character has had such a full life as Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. 
possibly the most endearing and enduring piece of commercial tie-in ever. The 1823 poem by Clement C. Moore, A Visit from St. Nicholas, usually referred to as Twas the Night Before Christmas, is largely credited for the contemporary Christmas lore that includes eight named reindeer. L. Frank Baum, author of The Wizard of Oz, came up with his own team of ten sleigh pullers for Father Christmas in his 1902 book, The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus, but they didn't stick. Two of Clement Moore's reindeers did see their names change slightly when one reprint of the poem used the German spellings for Donder and Blitzen rather than the original Dutch Dunder and Blixem. Both phrases translate to thunder and lightning. The only addition to the ungulate crew that people accepted since 1823 came by way of a free book given to children when their parents came shopping at the Montgomery Ward department store chain in 1939. Imagine if a Happy Meal toy became a cultural touchstone for almost a century. That's about what happened here. In the story, Rudolph's glowing red nose made him a social outcast among the other reindeer. Santa Claus's worldwide flight was imperiled by a severe fog. Visiting Rudolph's house to deliver his presents, Santa observed Rudolph's glowing red nose in a darkened bedroom and decided to use him as a makeshift lamp to guide his sleigh. Rudolph accepted Santa's request to lead the sleigh for the rest of the night and returned home a hero for having helped Santa Claus. Rudolph was the creation of Robert L. May, who was born to a well-off Jewish family in New Rochelle, New York in 1905 meaning he was only 14 when the stock market crash of 1929 ushered in the Great Depression, and May's family was financially ruined. As an adult, May married a woman who had the same name as one of his sisters, Evelyn, and the pair moved to Chicago, where he worked at Montgomery Ward as a copywriter for their famous catalogs. This was back in the Montgomery Ward versus Sears and Roebuck days. The pay wasn't great, but working was better than not working, especially when their daughter Barbara was born. A few years later, to balance out that happiness, fate came for Evelyn. She was diagnosed with cancer. Her prognosis was poor, but the family spent every last dollar on the best medical care they could get for her. In January of 1939, May's boss gave him a special assignment. Each year, during the Christmas shopping season, Montgomery Ward gave customers a free holiday children's book. Though it was popular and did bring customers in, it was costly for them to purchase these books to give away. The executives reasoned that it would be cheaper to produce their own book, and May was ordered to write it. The only guidance the secular Jew was given on his assignment was to write a Christmas story that should include animals. It's not a lot to go on. May drew from his own family to find inspiration. Little Barbara had gone nuts for the deer at Chicago's Lincoln Park Zoo. Maybe that could be the animal, since wasn't Santa's sleigh pulled by a kind of deer? May's wife Evelyn had told him stories about how painfully shy she was as a child, how the other children would make fun of her and exclude her from their play because of it. May could definitely empathize. His childhood had been similar, being bullied for being a big-nosed Jew. And I'm not playing to the stereotype. May had rather a long nose, which he was self-conscious about his entire life. While we're on the topic, there's no scientific evidence that Jews have bigger noses than other people from the same geographic regions. Two other things, however, are certain. When a Jewish person has a big nose, confirmation bias kicks in, 
it's interpreted as demonstrating Jewishness rather than just random genetics. And second, medieval demonization, not anthropological evidence, linked Jews with big noses. Rudolph, with his shiny nose, is called names and laughed at by the other reindeer. Unlike May, who assimilated so completely that his second wife and children didn't even know he was Jewish, Rudolph steadfastly refused to assimilate, and the thing that made him different saved the day and made everyone love him. It's important to bear in mind that May was writing this during Hitler's persecution of the Jews. All those factors came together with the idea to make the main character an underdog. Storytelling 101. May remembered, Suppose he, the hero, were an underdog, a loser, yet triumphant in the end. But what kind of loser? Certainly a reindeer's dream would be to pull Santa's sleigh. The last piece of the puzzle came in the form of a thick fog over Lake Michigan, the sort of fog that necessitates the four dozen or so lighthouses on the lake. As May looked at it from his office, Suddenly I had it. A nose. A bright red nose that would shine through the fog like a spotlight. Once he settled on a name, the legend was born. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. May was stoked about the idea. His boss, less so. In fact, his boss hated the concept. Undeterred, May asked a friend in the company's art department to draw the idea. A few days later, they took their design back to his boss, who retracted his initial opinion and commissioned May to put the story into a finished form. May began turning his story idea into a poem when he lost part of his inspiration. Evelyn died that July. May was devastated and drowned himself in his work, even after his boss offered to assign the project to someone else. By late August, the poem was done. Using his daughter and his in-laws as a focus group, May read the poem and knew from the look in their eyes that he had succeeded. The book went to print and became a hit almost as soon as a Montgomery Ward began handing it out. The company gave away 2.5 million copies that year. By 1946, they were giving away 6 million copies. A record company wanted to record the poem, but Montgomery Ward owned all of the rights to Rudolph's story and image. In a move that would look too cliché and cheesy for even the most uninspired Hallmark movie, when they approached the normally tough-as-nails CEO about it, he handed the rights over to May, no questions asked. Rudolph is kind of a double whammy for today's list. The original poem was written by a Jew, and so was the song based on it. In fact, the song was written by May's own brother-in-law, Johnny Marks, a decade later. It was the song that really cemented the flying reindeer myth into the American consciousness, becoming a hit for the singing cowboy Gene Autry in 1949. You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen, But do you recall the most famous reindeer of all? Oh, make this a hat trick, because May's publisher, Harry Elbaum, was also Jewish. Autry wasn't really sold on the idea of the song, and supposedly only agreed to record it because his wife pestered him about it, and it was made the B-side to another holiday song. 
Autry was soon disabused of his doubts when Rudolph became the number one hit song in the country for the week of Christmas 1949 and sold 2.5 million copies that year alone, eventually becoming the second biggest selling holiday record behind Bing Crosby's White Christmas. Since then, cartoons, books, and TV specials have been based on it, including the amazingly classic Rankin-Bass stop-motion movie and its mystifyingly bizarre sequel, in which Rudolph goes back to dinosaur times to save New Year's. 70s were weird, man. May remarried, converted to Catholicism, and had five more children before his death in 1976. Rudolph provided him with a comfortable income, though it didn't exactly make him rich. The real reward, he said, is knowing that every year, when Christmas rolls around, Rudolph still brings happiness to millions, both young and old. So, just as the poem predicted, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer did go down in history. And let's not gloss over Johnny Marx's contribution to Christmas either. This member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame also wrote Holly Jolly Christmas and Silver and Gold, which were hits for singer Burl Ives, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, which I always thought was a much older song than it is, Run Rudolph Run, recorded by Chuck Berry, all the songs in the Rankin-Bass Rudolph, and the worst holiday earworm of all, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, sung by Brenda Lee. Playing saxophone on that record was Nashville session musician Boots Randolph, the man who created Yakety Sax, the funny chase music from the Benny Hill Show. We've gotten to the what, but we're missing the why. Why is it that so many modern classic Christmas songs were written by people who don't celebrate Christmas? To answer that, we have to go all the way back to Russia at the end of the 19th century. Tsar Alexander II had ended the near-slavery system of feudal lords and serfs. After he was assassinated in 1881, his son Alexander III was quick to restart reversing his father's liberal reforms, and while he was at it, stigmatizing the Jews. According to one of Alexander's closest advisors, his idea was that one-third of the Jews will convert, one-third will die, and one-third will flee the country. It worked. Between 1881 and 1914, more than two million Jews left Russia, many of them bound for America. For a strictly, rigorously, historically accurate point of reference, think of the Mouskowitz family from An American Tale. No single city was affected more by the influx of Jews than New York. The Jewish population of the city grew from approximately 80,000 in 1870 to 1.4 million in 1915, or about 28% of the city's population. That's why it seems like there are tons of Jews in New York, even though Jews only make up around 3% of the country's population, because there are. Many immigrants, like Irving Berlin's family, found themselves crowded into the filthy tenements of the Lower East Side. Jobs were thin on the ground, with good jobs nearly unheard of, as Jews were forbidden from nearly all professions and restricted from pursuing higher education. That's why a surprisingly large number found their way into the world of popular music. If you had the talent, there were fewer barriers to entry than in other careers. As Minnie Marx, the mother of the Marx Brothers, said, where else can people who don't know anything make so much money? The struggle to make it ran concurrently with the desire to assimilate, to not be an outsider, to not be the other. 
Step 1. Get rid of your foreign Jewish name. Israel Berlin became Irving Berlin. Jacob and Israel Gershowitz became George and Ira Gershwin. And Asa Jolson became Al Jolson. Most left not only their names behind, but the evidence of their Jewishness as well. Being Jewish was as bad for business as being an immigrant. The desire to be, quote, real Americans became an asset. They were extraordinarily sensitive to the hopes and dreams of the American middle class that they so desperately wanted to enter, especially when their new home was threatened during World War II. After Irving Berlin's White Christmas broke record sales in 1942, composers set their sights on Christmas. Prior to that, Christmas songs didn't seem worth the bother. They'd only sell records and sheet music for about one month out of the year. As hard as it may be to believe now, it's not that long ago that Christmas was just another holiday, albeit a popular one, rather than something that half the year is devoted to and entire industries hinge on. And a quick side note for a theory I have. There's the line in It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year referencing scary ghost stories. People are starting to change that lyric, not because it's offensive to anyone, but because it doesn't make a lot of sense to us. It's not culturally relative. Think about the fact that the songwriters were recently of the old world. The old world where, if you listened to last week's episode, Christmas spirits and other monsters, was full of frightening tales of monsters and 'er ne'er-do-wells. So maybe characters like the Krampus, Gorilla, Frau Percha, and the Yule Cat are the scary ghost stories referred to in the song. Bridging the gap between religions to write a song about a holiday you've never celebrated was not as difficult as it may seem. White Christmas only contains two images of Christmas in its eight lines. You don't even need to understand Christmas. Just the feel of Christmas time. The Norman Rockwell version of things. A mythic, secular, American Christmas on which the country could project its dreams and create memories of a significantly rose-colored past. This kind of Christmas was one that even Jews could participate in. Each of these Jewish songwriters took their own individual path toward assimilation, but together they created the soundtrack for a Christmas that was more an American holiday than a Christian holiday, more cultural than religious. Everyone was invited to the party. The new secular Christmas they helped invent reflected the country's ideal of a melting pot to bring disparate people together under one banner. They created tableaus of simpler, more innocent past that a troubled country could look to for comfort. Their songs continue to bring this idyllic past to life and allow us, if only for one day a year, to believe in it. Jewish immigrants, desperate to participate in the American dream, created the Christmas that you know and love. Something to think about in these polarizing times. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Thank you for sticking with me through another year. Remember that you can always find the script for the show and all of the research sources at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And whatever you're celebrating, I hope you have a happy one.
Well, you stuck it all the way out to the end tape, so you get to listen to me throw a little bit of shade here. There is no war on Christmas. I saw a commercial referencing Christmas in the last week of August. August. The store I work at was putting up tinsel before we finished taking down the Halloween decorations. Trust me, if there was a war on Christmas, I would have started it myself. The only saving grace is there are only speakers in the back half of the store, and I can't hear the Christmas carols from the register. Keep your sunny side up. love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as i delve into unsolved historical mysteries murders by gaslight and of course women who have been misrepresented through all time on who did what now the history podcast that's not your history class listen wherever you get your podcasts <laughs>